Okay, Revelation 2, 18 to 29. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will pay each one according to your deeds. Now I will say this to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to a teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just before we start, can I uh, just assure you that T&E um, has been praying for you guys this last year and so um, thankful to God for how well we hear things are going up here. And if I've never uh, met you before, then to me that's all the more encouraging to see um, people up here at T&E with the, uh, sorry, at Trinity Grove with the, um, with you guys going so strong. It's, um, massively encouraging to us down there. Many weeks at church we pray for you. Um, individuals tell me they're praying for you. And, um, we're just so thankful to God that, uh, things have gone so well up here and we are praying that it continues that way as well. I sometimes, uh, find myself in these situations where people tell me things that are happening in their life or have happened and it's like they're telling me because they want to hear what I think you know they want to get something off their chest or they're looking for reassurance that whatever they've done was the right thing you probably have this kind of situation too you know where people are telling you things and partly they're just wanting to vent but partly also what they're looking for is affirmation reassurance that they they just want to hear you say, yeah, you did the right thing. As a minister, I, I find these situations particularly tricky because sometimes people are looking to reassure themselves, even if it's just subconsciously, with what the minister thinks. Which is funny because I know my opinion doesn't matter that much at all. Who cares what Stephen thinks? These situations can be a bit tricky because instead of reassuring people that I think they're doing the right thing, 
if I'm going to be any help to someone, it'll only be as I help them to think through for themselves and to ask themselves, does Jesus think I'm doing the right thing? So a young guy I used to know who used to run drugs in Chinese containers from Sydney to a country town on the train, became a Christian and when I used to meet up with him, he was telling me one time how his cousins were still selling drugs. That's who he used to run them for. And they are still doing it, but he doesn't feel that he needs to talk to the police about it. What does he want to hear me say? Yeah, you're doing the right thing. Or the person who tells me about their line of work, how they've just got to break the rules in their work. You know, they deal with countries where you've just got to offer a bribe. That's just what you've got to do. What do they want to hear me say? Yeah, you're doing the right thing. Or even in less dramatic situations, um, the parents who tell me that they'd love to be at church on a Sunday, but their kids have got sport and their kids really love the sport. They love them so much. They love the sport so much. They just can't take them away from it. What is it that they want to hear me say? Well, they just want to hear, yeah. You're doing the right thing. Or even actually in the very, very dramatic situation, like what happened a couple of months ago with me, someone who became a Christian from another religion, their dad suspected. And he said to them, if you become a Christian, you know I'll kill you. And then this person was telling me that they couldn't really live the Christian life because of this. What do they want to hear me say? Yeah, you're doing the right thing. But who cares whether Stephen thinks they're doing the right thing or not? What matters is what Jesus thinks. And if I'm going to help them, it'll only be as I help them ask themselves that question, does Jesus think I'm doing the right thing? Could you imagine handing yourself into the police or risking losing your job or saying no to the kids about something they really love? or even risking losing your life, it'll only be possible for us to do these kind of things if we have a clear vision, a crystal clear vision of who Jesus is. And this, of course, is what the book of Revelation is all about. It's all about giving us a clear vision of who Jesus is. The apostles... The, the people who saw Jesus with their own eyes and, and heard his words, they were dying out at the time when Revelation was written. In fact, just John's left now and he's old and he's on the island of Patmos as a prisoner. And the question that's in the air is, what's going to happen to the church after these guys disappear? What's going to stop Christians from being torn in a thousand different directions by all sorts of teachings and ideas and all different ways of living? And the answer is only a clear vision of who Jesus is, only a clear call of what he's on about. And this is exactly what the book of Revelation gives us. As you've already seen, John comes face to face with Jesus like perhaps we've never pictured him before, with white hair, And eyes blazing like fire, feet like glowing bronze, and a voice like rushing waters. The first, 
the last, the living one who holds the keys of death and Hades, the one who's coming back. And this Jesus addresses his seven church, his churches. And as you started to see last week, there are seven representative churches mentioned by name. But what Jesus says is actually relevant to all churches. Last week, Peter talked about Jesus' letter to Ephesus, the first church mentioned. And today we're going to look at the church, the letter to the church of Thyatira. It's actually the church in the smallest city, but it gets the longest letter right in the middle of all the other letters. And like all the other letters, it starts with a brief but awesome reminder of just who it is that's speaking. They get a clear vision of Jesus. Have a look with me at verse 18. These are the words... Oops. Sorry. No, back here. (laughs) Don't get motion sickness if you can help it. Verse 18. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. See, this Jesus is making it crystal clear who it is that they're dealing with. First, he's the Son of God. He's the Christ. God's appointed king. He has the right to rule, the authority to rule all things. Next, his eyes are like blazing fire. He sees all things. We might be able to hide things even from ourselves, but we can't hide them from him. And finally, his feet are like burnished bronze. He stands strong and ready to stamp out evil. Now, if you were here last week, you'll probably notice as this letter was read that Today's letter follows a very similar pattern to the letter to Ephesus, which Peter preached on last week. And actually, all seven of the letters are pretty much like this. We see the good, we see the bad, we hear a call from Jesus, and then we see the consequences of either obedience or disobedience. So let's look at the good first. Look at verse 19. Look at what Jesus loves about them. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. This is pretty high praise, isn't it? Not only is this a a church filled with love for God and, and love for each other and strong faith, with people serving each other and sticking at it year in and year out. But amazingly, they they haven't stalled. They're actually growing in all these things. They're different to what you saw last week with the Ephesians. The church at Thyatira, they haven't lost their first love. They love Jesus more now than ever. Wouldn't you love to be a part of this church? Surely this church has got it all together. But then we see the bad, and it really doesn't seem to fit with the good. Have a look at verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. It doesn't seem to fit at all. I mean, how could they tolerate Jezebel? Do you remember Jezebel from the Old Testament? She was the wife of um, King Ahab of northern Israel. She led God's people to worship the the god Baal 
And she had this horrible habit of killing God's prophets. Now, is it just me or is it a little bit surprising that this church at Thyatira can receive such high praise from Jesus when it's happy to tolerate Jezebel? I mean, could you imagine if Voldemort was in your church and we were happy to kind of let him lead the service today and and run a, a Bible study through the week? I mean, it just sounds too fantastic to be true, doesn't it? Too bizarre. How can they be so highly praised on the one hand, but then so irresponsible and blind on the other? Well, as we're going to see, the answer is easy. So easy that it's actually scary and it should make us sit up and pay attention to what Jesus is saying. So let's have a a closer look at what's going on here. Now, it's, it's highly unlikely that Jezebel is the literal name of someone at Thyatira. This would be like calling your child Cruella de Vil or something and them growing up to have an unhealthy interest in Dalmatians. Like a lot of things in the book of Revelation, this is picture language. And in verse 20, we get some more details of the picture that's being painted. We learn... By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. That's an interesting combination, isn't it? Don't you think? Sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. You know, is this this combination linked or is it just two random things that she leads them into? Most likely, sexual immorality here is picture language for unfaithfulness to God. In, a, in the book of Revelation, the church is the bride of Christ. And so sexual immorality, adultery, is unfaithfulness to Jesus. In the Old Testament, unfaithfulness to God is also pictured as sexual immorality. So in Hosea verses, uh, sorry, chapter 1, verse 2, it says that God's people were like an adulterous wife. This land is is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And part of the reason that unfaithfulness to God is pictured as sexual immorality in the Old Testament is because it often led to literal sexual immorality as well. At Thyatira, someone is teaching something that's leading the people to be unfaithful to Jesus. And somehow it's connected to food that's sacrificed to idols. And here's the critical thing. The church, the faithful believers, seem happy to tolerate this. Now it's pretty hard to know exactly what's happening in Thyatira, you know, now, 2,000 years later. But this is what we do know. It was a very religious place and it was full of artisan guilds or trade unions. So Thyatira was not a huge city, but this city had two temples, even though it was small. And actually, more coins have been dug up there with inscriptions for trade unions than any other city in that region. This is kind of a um, pencil uh, outline of, of one. So it was a city known for its religion and for these highly organized trade unions. We don't hear much about Thyatira in the Bible, in fact it's only in one other place in Acts 16 verse 14 where Paul meets Lydia 
in Philippi, who is actually a dealer in purple cloth from Thyatira. And from all the inscriptions of the coins dug up, we actually know there were trade unions for wool workers, linen workers, dyers, makers of of clothing, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers and bronzemiths. And on all of these coins consistently are the gods associated with these trade unions. Back then, trade unions would have banquets which would almost certainly have had food sacrificed to their God served at the banquets. Paul talked about this kind of scenario in 1 Corinthians in three chapters, 8 to 10. And he talked about this kind of scenario with this this logic. I'm just going to trace it very briefly for you. He goes, us Christians know that idols are nothing, don't we? They're not gods. And so he says, it's okay for us Christians to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. We don't need to fear. We don't need to fear idols. But the minute we know that it's been sacrificed to an idol... We can't eat it. It's not so much for our sake, but for other people's sake. Because we know an idol is nothing, but they don't know that. So if they tell us, and then we eat that food sacrificed to an idol, what we're saying is that we don't think we need to commun- we, we don't need to serve God only. What we're communicating is that we're okay with syncretism. We're okay with serving Jesus and serving other gods. But here's the thing. Jesus is not happy for us to be happy to communicate that. He wants us to be clear that it's him only that we serve. That's kind of three chapters summarized. So Paul says, if you're in the meat markets... Eat whatever you buy. If you're in someone's house and they serve up dinner, eat it. Don't ask any questions. But the minute they say to you, oh, did I tell you that this has been offered to an idol? Then for the sake of that person and for loyalty to Jesus, if we're going to be loyal to Jesus, then we need to say, okay, I'll just have the salad. Now come back with me to Thyatira, full of the trade unions. And imagine that you're at that banquet in honour of the God of your trade union. You're eating, they're serving up, meat sacrificed to the God. Now imagine saying to everyone, sorry, I just can't participate. Because I've got my own God who really exists, but I'd still like all the benefits of being a part of your trade union. Is that all right? How do you think that's going to go down? Who would want you in their trade union? I mean, you're someone who offends all the rest with your elitism. But more than that, you offend the God that they're all relying on for prosperity in their trade. And these trade unions were so powerful in Thyatira that it would make it almost impossible for anyone to make a living who was not a member. Good luck selling your purple cloth. No one's going to want to buy it from you. Following Jesus in Thyatira probably meant for many people that they were unable to participate in the guilds and unable to make a living 
Okay, but now picture this. Then you meet a woman who's been a Christian a lot longer than you, who understands things so much deeper than you. In fact, she says she actually once heard Paul teaching. And she heard him say, there's no such thing as an idol. And it's actually those who are weak who think that there's a problem with eating food sacrificed to an idol. And this wise Christian woman says to you, it's okay to participate. It's okay to blend in. You don't need to make a scene. You don't need to make a sharp distinction at the banquets between Jesus and the other gods. You can just carry on and and go with the flow. It doesn't matter what they think. You have a deeper knowledge and that's what matters. Imagine the relief you'd feel. You can still be a part of your trade union and follow Jesus. You know, you can still be involved in all that stuff, enjoy the banquets, let them think you're okay with their gods, and it's all okay. It sounds appealing. And even if in the end you thought, no, I just can't do it, I just, I just can't go to that banquet, it's just not for me, are you really going to be willing to confront this person in your church and accuse them of being a Jezebel? Maybe she's right, maybe it is okay. After all, an idol really is nothing. Well, we've seen the good, we've seen the bad. Now it's time to hear Jesus' call. Have a look at verse 24. Jesus says, Hmm, he does say that, but that's not what I intended to show right now. Uh, so have a look in your Bibles, perhaps at verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. And there are some who haven't listened to this woman, but they've tolerated her. They've let her have a a voice in their midst. And Jesus' command here is nothing new. It's the same as before. They just need to hold on to what they already have. Jesus' words, I will not impose any other burden on you, should make us think, well, what is the burden that they're already shouldering? And the words that Jesus uses here are very much like the decree from the Jerusalem council in Acts 15.28. Let me see if I can find that for you. Oh yeah, here it is here. Listen to this. This is from the apostles to all the churches. And see if you can see the similarity in his wording to theirs. They write, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols from blood, from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. Do you see that? Jesus' command to them is, in Thyatira, is just to continue to stand by the same requirements that have always been there. They've already been told that they need to abstain from food sacrificed to idols. And now he's saying they need to just hold on to this. They shouldn't tolerate any fancy, deep theology that tries to dance around the issue. 
They need to keep insisting on staying loyal to Jesus alone. Well, it's been interesting, hasn't it? But is there really anything that we can take away from this letter? Except maybe don't join a trade union. Is that right? That's wrong. This letter has got so much to say to churches today. What was it that Jesus had against them? What offends him so much? Well, it's their lack of being offended. It's what they tolerate. Not what they tolerate out in the world out there. You know, Jesus doesn't tell them to rage against the world. Doesn't tell them to sign a petition and organize a march against the trade unions. Jesus tells them to hold what they've always been told to hold and not to allow teaching in the church, no matter how deep or clever it might be, not to allow teaching in the church that compromises allegiance to Jesus. As Christians, we can be far too intolerant of things out there in the world while being far too tolerant of the world being in here amongst us. See, boil this down, down, down as far as it will go. And this is their problem at Thyatira. They were tolerating in their church a teaching that was threatening their singular allegiance to Jesus. Now, of course, we live in an age of tolerance. The only thing that we will not tolerate today is intolerance. Now, surely this has got to be a danger for us, that we'll tolerate here things that Jesus says we shouldn't. See, Jezebel doesn't waltz in here all in black, asking if we've got any Dalmatian puppies. Oh, hang on, that was Cruella. Anyway, you get the idea. Jezebel comes reassuring us, affirming us, teaching us that it's okay. Just blend in. It's okay to take part in things that other people think contradict Jesus' right to rule. Jesus knows your heart. Don't worry about making a painful stand for him. See, as as we finish up, we've got to ask ourselves the obvious question. Is what, what teaching that goes on in amongst churches today, is there teaching that denies the unique, singular authority of Jesus? Now, I can't fully answer that question today. We don't have the time to fully go into it. And the dangers keep shifting, you realize. And if you're under 25, I actually think that you have a responsibility to think it through for the sake of the future of the church. You're the next generation. Where are the dangers going to be in the church that you're going to inherit and be the leaders in? It's your job. Are you thinking those things through? What are we tolerating in the church today, not just here, but in churches today, that we shouldn't be? But I want to finish with just a couple of examples to kind of illustrate the point. Examples we've seen in the past and one or two that we're seeing today that can help us recognize future temptations to compromise. One is that you can serve Jesus and greed. No one puts it quite like that, right? You know, no church says, Trinity Northeast, serving Jesus and greed since 2010. This is going to sound great on the recording, isn't it? 
be like, why is Trinity Grove picking on Trinity Northeast? So if you're listening online, I'm Stephen from Trinity Northeast, it's okay. <laughs> but no church puts it that starkly. But did you know, and I'm sure you do, for years churches tolerated the idea that if you followed Jesus, he would make you rich. It's still a curse in many parts of the world. I mean, it's mostly died down here in Australia as far as I know, thank God. But churches tolerated this teaching when they shouldn't have. But actually, I, I don't think it's completely died down. Because if we're a church that doesn't challenge greed and, and the out of control materialism of our day here, if instead we're happy for people to teach that it's okay to live for God and stuff, then we're in danger. We're in the same danger as the church at Thyatira. Are we tolerating that it's okay for us to be eating from food sacrificed to the idol of greed? It's okay to, to serve Jesus and money. Or are we insisting that our tendency towards greed is challenged here? There's a similar te- teaching that we could be tempted to tolerate. And that's the idea that we could serve Jesus and ourselves. In fact, we serve Jesus as a means to better ourselves, as a means of self-actualization, to be the best me I can be. Have you heard that kind of idea? Are we tolerating that it's okay for us to be eating from food sacrificed to the idol of self? It's okay to serve Jesus as a way of serving ourselves as number one. Or are we insisting that our tendency toward making everything about self-expression, self-fulfillment, my health, my potential, are we insisting that that's challenged? When we tolerate people teaching in the church that Jesus is just a means to a greater end rather than himself being that end, the beginning and the end, then we've lost sight of who he is and we're in danger. When churches are happy to tolerate man's word being taught instead of God's word, we're in danger. When we're happy to tolerate teaching that says it's okay to take the easy road and fit in with our culture, it's okay to let people think that you think Jesus is just one of many ways to God. It's okay to let people think that you think the Bible isn't really the word of God. When we're happy to tolerate these, we're in danger, the same danger as the church in Thyatira. I think... The clearest example we see now, today, of churches tolerating teaching that denies Jesus' absolute authority is in the area of sexuality. Does Jesus have the right to tell us what we should and shouldn't do in our bedrooms? Jesus is not telling us here to get out there and petition the world, rage against them. He's telling us here not to tolerate teaching that denies Jesus' absolute authority in our church. But sadly, many churches do. And many Christians just put up with it and say nothing, sometimes for years, sometimes for decades. Since Mike's not here, can I just take this opportunity to encourage you, to encourage him? Not just when he says the things that we all love to hear, But when he says the things that make us uncomfortable, the things that we don't like, the world doesn't really like, encourage him. Not just because he's being annoying, but because he's doing it to remind you that our allegiance is to Jesus alone. 
And Jesus alone has the absolute right to tell us how to live. See, truth and love are inseparable. You know, like a coin. Truth is on one side and love is always on the other. Now, I asked at the beginning, what's going to lead us to be willing to hand ourselves over to the police? What's going to be, what's going to lead us to be willing to give up our job if that's what it took? And I said, only a clear vision of who Jesus is. What would lead the people in Thyatira to say, I want to be a part of your trade union, but I don't want to be, have any part with your God? What would lead people in Thyatira to stop tolerating teaching that says it's okay to look like you're serving another God? It's the same answer, only a clear vision of who Jesus is. And what's going to lead us to not tolerate teaching that it's okay to love material things? What will lead us to not tolerate teaching that it's okay to blend into the world around us in a way that diminishes Jesus' lordship over us? What would lead us to let Jesus have the right to lead us even when it comes to sexuality and what we think about it? It's the same answer. Only a clear vision of who Jesus is. Only a clear vision that Jesus is the one with absolute power who uses that absolute power to rule with absolute love. Only a clear vision of who Jesus is will lead us to live for him alone. Let's pray now to this Jesus. Lord Jesus, reveal yourself to us clearly in our lives. Help us to see that you are the first and the last, all-powerful, all good, completely loving, completely truthful. Lord Jesus, you do see into our hearts, into our minds, into our lives. You see the truth even when we hide it from ourselves. Lord, help us not to tolerate in ourselves anything that would diminish your lordship, your loving rule in our lives. And Lord, Help us to be a church that guards against tolerating things here that diminish your lordship. And we pray for your church, Lord, in the world. Lord, there are many churches that are tolerating things that shouldn't, they shouldn't. We ask, Lord, that you would help us open our eyes to see where we are making that mistake and to walk away from it. And we also ask for our brothers and sisters in other churches. Lord, have mercy on them. Help them to turn away from things that are against you and to recognize your loving power and your loving rule. We pray this in your name. Amen.